0: up on today's show, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith will join us to talk about her first week in the top job. Is profiteering to blame for the soaring cost of living? We know some politicians think so. We'll speak with an economist. And Canada sanctions 17 more officials from Iran, puts in new sanctions against the regime. Are we doing enough? Joining us now, uh, this is great. We have Danielle Smith, the new Premier of Alberta, joining us. Premier Smith, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time.
1: Well, hello, Shay Ganem. Pleasure to be here. Um, let's just start. A couple. Of, I just
0: want to try and get some clarity around a couple of things that I've wanted to ask you since well last week. First of all, sovereignty act seems to me it's changed a little bit. Set me straight if I've got this wrong, because when everybody got upset when it started, basically what I understood was, hey, if the courts rule that you know either the federal government has done something untoward to Alberta or Alberta's brought in a policy that the courts say you know that's not constitutional that's not legal alberta may decide you know what we're just going to ignore the courts however last week it sounds like you said we'll take it right up to the supreme court and once they rule that's the end of the story it's over and done that's the law of the land. so so where is where is the truth like what 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 is the sovereignty act what does it say about that
1: Well, I I know that uh, very few media actually came to any of my speeches, but I can tell you what I said in hundreds of speeches across the province. What I said was that what we have right now is a situation where the federal government passes unconstitutional laws all the time invading our areas of jurisdiction then they make us go to the courts to fight it out what the sovereignty act would do is it would set up a shield it would say do not legislate in our areas of jurisdiction and it would say we will not enforce any federal laws that do and then they can take us to court and they can be the ones who fight it out but ultimately you see what i mean like the courts i have always respected as an area of of adjudicating these issues i've even been asked about the carbon tax and i've said well you know that's Supreme Court has ruled on that. And so as a result, we'd have to find a a way to either re-litigate it or find some other way to compensate. So I think it's been just a media misunderstanding, and I don't think that the media has done a particularly good job of explaining what I have repeated over and over and over again. So I'm glad you gave me this opportunity to clarify, Shay. Nothing's changed.
0: Okay, one more question, because you put on a statement September 6th, and I'll just read from it. It says, if a court stays or ultimately deems that the actions undertaken by the province under a specific Alberta Sovereignty Act special motion is unconstitutional, then the government government and the legislature will review the special motion actions in question and will make a decision as to whether or not to amend end or continue with them understanding the legal implications.
1: Let me give you an example. I know that the National Citizens Coalition for years was getting court victories on issues of free speech about restrictions on political advertising. And so part of what happened is the government kept on trying to find ways that they could bring in restrictions around political advertising that were compliant with what the uh, Constitution said. And ultimately, they came up with a version that the court was able to approve. It's why we have uh, political action committees and and third-party advertisers that now are, are subject to spending limits. So the conversation that courts have with, juristic, with legislatures is an ongoing one. And it's up to the legislatures to take what the courts say and see if there is a way to revise the mm-hmm. legislation Relitigate if there's new information, or find some other way of achieving the policy goal in a different way. It's the way our country has always worked. Um, but the, the issue that I have is that the federal government is passing unconstitutional rules, and we need to tell them, stop doing this. Our jurisdiction is our jurisdiction. They have no more right to legislate in our jurisdiction than we do in their areas of jurisdiction. So this is going to be turning the tables on them. Um.
0: Is it still bill one? Is it still job one? That was uh, or are we now moving on to where does it fit in terms of the first act? uh, You know, once you're elected or or whatever, is it still job one for you?
1: It'll still be Bill 1, because remember, now that I'm seeking a by-election by- in uh, Brooks Medicine Hat, that by-election will be uh, called on November the 8th. If I'm successful, there's a period of time that we have to wait to make sure the results are validated. So the earliest I can be in the legislature is November 29th, and that is just too long to wait for us to move on getting some of the, the changes that we need in Alberta Healthcare. I've talked to our health minister, Jason Copping, and he's um, he's very eager with me. He's gone across the province over the last several months with several several members of the of the team and heard directly from people in multiple communities about the problems in the EMS that we need to fix, about the problems that we need to fix in the structure of Alberta Health Services, and so we're, we'll be moving on that very quickly. Okay, gotcha. Um, I, I've heard a lot of people
0: asking about this. Dr. Dina Hinshaw, does she still work for, As she, she's still our Chief Medical Officer of Health? I know that the com- conversation was had last week from the podium. Has she been fired or is she still on her job?
1: I've I've talked to Minister Copping about that. I've I've told him that I won't won't be doing joint press conferences with Dr. Dina Hinshaw. I have a a team of advisors that I am uh, assembling among doctors, medical staff across the province, who I'll be um, be announcing in in pretty short order. They will be advising me through the fall respiratory virus season. And um, um, at at this precise moment, Dr. Dina Hinshaw is still the chief medical officer. Gotcha. Okay, fair enough. Uh, This thing that blew up over
0: the weekend, the Ukraine situation, and I I think you put out a statement clarifying it yesterday with a full, throated support of Ukraine. Um, several examples, as you know, within the last few months where things were a little bit different. Uh, you talked about Ukraine needing to be neutral. The question I'm working towards, you know, you, you attack Rachel Notley for politicizing this. I'm just wondering, you know, as we're going through this campaign, how does she get the blame for politicizing your comments about Russia and Ukraine?
1: Well, I think you have to remember, I mean, I've been in public life for 27 years. I've had a number of different jobs, a number of different roles, and um, I'm the role I'm in right now is, is Premier, I suppose we could kind of relitigate every statement that I have made in the past with the different hats that I've worn, but I do find when I talk to the public, what they're interested in knowing is what I'm going to do going forward. And what I'm going to do going forward, because my great-grandfather, Philippus Kolodniki, came over after World War I, so he clearly was fleeing the communism in Eastern Europe at the time, and I feel very strongly that we've got to support... Our Ukrainian community, and the best way as a province that we can support. Remember, I respect pr- federal jurisdiction. It's up to them to weigh in on international relations and negotiations. It's our job as a province to lend out a hand and a heart of help, so that we can repatriate anyone who wants to come here and help them find work, help them find a community that will accept them. Also, uh, deliver humanitarian aid. I know that Ed Stelmach and Thomas Lecasick have been doing tremendous work in this regard, and that to me is us staying in our lane and being properly supportive at a time of uh, incredible global crisis. I think uh, we have a very large expatriate Ukrainian community who've got lots of friends and family that they want us to help, and I'm prepared to step up and do that. Um, I think you make
0: a good point that, you know, you've been in public life for a long time, and and the things that you've said are are on the record. There's no question about it. And I think you make uh, a point here. Uh, which, Which word which statement is the one that counts because you've changed on russia U- ukraine uh, you've changed on sovereignty act you had to clarify your comments on the most discriminated group in history um there's been three clarifications in your first six days in office so uh, who which statements are albertans to take as being the ones that count and which ones might change down the road i mean you did say these things do, do you stand by any of them
1: I the thing is, I notice there's a big difference in how the media does uh, interviews me versus what the public wants to hear, and I'm, I'm noticing that the media loves to be able to try to find something that will get them maximum number of clips and, and clicks and maximum amount of outrage so they can do follow-up stories. playing your out- own words, are. I'm just letting you know when I talk to the members of the public and I say, okay, well, you know, I may have been able to word this a little bit better, um, but or maybe I, I should have said it a different way. They they accept that and move on, and so I'm really interested. In, in making sure that Albertans have an opportunity to ask me what I want to do as premier, as uh, opposed to I, th- I think uh, what I what I see in the media is that they're, uh, you know, I gave an hour-long press conference and sort of one sentence is the only thing that gets reported on it. So I put the, put it back on you guys that I would just prefer that we talk about real and substantive issues that matter to Albertans. That's what I'm going to keep doing.
0: Well, I think those are substantive issues. I think if you're running to be premier of the province in a by-election in Brooks Medicine we have to know that what you say today isn't going to be different tomorrow, a week from now, or a month from now. We need to know where the leader of the province stands on these major issues.
1: Well, let me tell you where I stand. I ran on three major issues. Sovereignty Act so we can push back against Ottawa. I'm going to do that. Ran on changing the Alberta Human Rights Code so that we do not discriminate against people on the basis of their COVID vaccine status. I'm going to do that. And we're also going to restructure Alberta health care so it starts working for people and patients and the front line rather than the administrators. Those are the three things that I ran on. Those are the three things I'm going to do.
0: Um, have you been to Brooks Medicine Hat yet? Is that the plan? When do you plan to get out there and do some campaigning in the writing?
1: I was there on uh, when I when I went down to just seek permission from the local board to accept me as their candidate. Mm-hmm. It's been pretty busy the first week. I've spent the first week meeting with all 60 of our MLAs. I've got a few more meetings that I have to do today, plus getting briefings from the deputy ministers. We've got a caucus retreat happening over the next few days, announcing cabinet on uh, on on friday having an agm on the weekend cabinet sworn in on on monday and then i will be spending an awful lot of time in brooks medicine hat
0: uh last one and then i'll let you go calgary elbow a lot of people on the text line right now in calgary text me what about calgary elbow what about calgary elbow are you going to run are you going to run somebody in calgary elbow why why does that um writing not need representation for the next six seven months but brooks you got to jump in right away
1: Well, I think people expect that when a person becomes premier and doesn't have a seat, there is a convention and expectation that they are going to seek a seat at the earliest opportunity. We also have a convention that when we're a year out from a a general election campaign, you can keep a seat vacant. And so I don't want to have unnecessary by elections. There may be other seats that also come open. And so I want to make sure that I'm there so that I can give the representation needed and have the mandate as as premier by by getting that local mandate. And so you'll you'll see um, in the next coming, Days, why it is that Elbow is a little bit more complicated? I have two sitting uh, MLAs that I knew were interested in potentially moving over to represent that riding, and one of them may. And so that would have then created another vacancy. And so I think you'll have to, to you'll you'll be able to see in the in the coming days as those nominations begin. I believe in open, fair uh, nomination process. I was consulted with the board; they wanted to have an open, fair nomination process to choose the right candidate for that area, and uh, that's what I'm going to do.
0: If you don't want an unnecessary by-election, why have one, have a MLA step down in Brooks Medicine Hat when you have a vacancy in Calgary Elbow? You literally created an unnecessary by-election.
1: Well, as you know, um, I've, I've moved into rural Alberta because I love rural Alberta. Michaela Glasgow had already announced that she was uh, going to be stepping aside because she said, as, as she puts it so eloquently, the, the title she wants to wear most is mom, and so she just accelerated that because she um, she wants to be able to, to to focus on family. And so I was delighted that she um, offered up her seat, and that's the reason that I'm running there. I'm a I believe that rural Alberta has. Felt ignored over the last number of years. And by running in a rural riding, um, I'm, I'm hoping to, to demonstrate that the rural voice is at the table. When I'm a Calgary girl, grew up, born and raised, I was on radio in a Calgary for six years. But I, when I ran in office the first time, I made a conscious decision to represent a rural riding for a lot of reasons. I think the diversity of it, being able to be in touch with the heavy industry, agri-food, oil and gas development, we've got a military base down there. All of those issues and the complexity of that Riding, I think is important for me to understand because it's a bit of a microcosm of the province. That's the reason why I wanted to represent that riding.
0: Premier Smith, I appreciate your time. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I hope we can do this again, but thanks so much for joining us.
1: You bet. My pleasure.
0: Canada's biggest grocery chain. Uh, is freezing their price on all of their no-name products, generic products, um, saying it's trying to help Canadians fight food inflation. This is Loblaw. They've locked in the prices on 13, 1,500 grocery items up until January 31st of 2023. So you're looking at November, December, January. Basically, you're not going to see any price increases in Loblaw's supermarkets on their no-name products they're under pressure. Uh, that's why they're doing this. Let's be clear. Um, a lot of people pointing fingers at not just grocery stores, but a lot of people pointing fingers at grocery stores about um, corporations, companies profiting off this inflationary cycle that we're in right now. And um, is that part of it? We hear, you know, the, the conservatives talk about just inflation. It's It's Prime Minister Trudeau's spending that's causing all of this. Other people say, "Ah, oh, no, you got the war in Ukraine. That's the reason for that. I mean, there's no list of um, things that are being blamed for the inflationary period that we're in right now. So Trevor Toom is an associate professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary, and he recently looked into profiteering, and if that's something that we need to be aware of with what's going on. Trevor, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So we're calling this greedflation, right, which is corporations <laughs> gouging us and making huge profits. I mean, if you take a look at it, we know that some of these corporations are making really good profits, Trevor.
2: Yeah, and, and throughout the whole economy in Canada, we have seen now profit levels uh, at record highs. In the in the second quarter of this year, so, May, um, so April, May, June, sorry. Profits exceeded $150 billion, which is about a 21% increase yeah. over what we saw the previous year. So it's certainly true the profits are up. Uh, and that is leading uh, some, uh, the NDP in particular, to point to that as a source of inflation pressures in Canada.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's been, Jagmeet Singh's been talking about that for some time now, specifically around grocery stores. Um, mm-hmm. Is it that simple, though, Trevor? Like I said, there's there's no shortage of things that are getting blamed. And I imagine there's a combination, but um, surely there's more than just uh, the corporations that are making money here, and that's why we're all paying more, Right. Yeah, and we
2: do have data that allows us to unpack how changes in profit margins have contributed to price changes in Canada. It does look like very strongly, at least when I look at the data, that that's really not the case it, with food in particular. So food and beverage stores, so grocery stores yep. in general, had profit margins last year of uh, 4.1%. And in the second quarter this year, it's 37 So, Actually, profit margins have been ranking, which means that Hmm. costs have increased at a slightly higher rate than prices have, meaning that it's not prices rising above what the cost pressures are for those grocery stores.
0: Interesting. So when we see the increased profit, I mean, the margin hasn't changed. So what is it, just volume? Mm -hmm.
2: People are spending more? Yeah, exactly. We are seeing higher volumes at grocery stores. You can think about some of that as uh, people now... Yeah, purchasing food and, and making their own meals at home more. Think about those yeah, who are, yeah. are, are still working from home, for example. So margins have fallen, but that means profit in terms of dollars could still go, uh, go up if these stores are selling more. And we are seeing that at, at low levels. and it's not just that people are spending more, but they're also spending a little bit differently as well. Like we are seeing uh, higher spending on discount uh, stores and discount brands within stores like, uh, like the no-name brand that was the, um, of uh, the price freeze today
0: so uh jagmeet singh as we said focusing on profiteering he flat out called it profiteering he says that's what's going on and i think that's probably what triggered the move by uh Law today uh but he's got it wrong essentially right they're they're not actually gouging us this is just the way that the market's playing out and it means more money for them but they're, they haven't increased their margins that's the bottom line when it comes
2: to this yeah, and, and it's not just they haven't increased margins, it's that they've decreased margins. And the entire reason for profits being high in Canada now is really driven by oil and gas, mining, yeah. and petroleum products, right? Things where the prices have absolutely increased this year, but because of global factors rather than any kind of, uh, anti-competitive corporate greed behavior, if you will, in Canada. Um, so
0: is that case closed? I, it won't be. Obviously, we get I, I, is it, a lot of this is anger, right, Trevor? I mean, we just get mad about how much we have to pay.
2: It, it, indeed, and this is not something where it's unique to the NDP or unique to inflation. I mean, these kind of uh, complex issues are often oversimplified by politicians across the political spectrum. I think that um, you know that the, the conservatives place a lot of blame with the federal government yes. and the Bank of Canada. I think, you know, that's a part of it. Uh, you have the NDP pointing to corporate pricing behavior, and and maybe in some areas or certain sectors that might be uh, an issue. I, I don't think it's the case with grocery stores, though, so that might be a misplaced target. So I think, you know, it's it's a complicated issue, and we should... Um, I think not look for simple answers. Should, yeah, not look for simple answers, and, and maybe reject the uh, very polarized... Um, answers that we're getting from politicians yeah
0: probably just safest to say all of the things that you've heard about probably play a role but uh they're they all need to come together to get us in the mess that we're in no one of them is. i, to I
2: think that's right i think that's right
0: excellent trevor thank you so much for your time i appreciate you joining us Talking about the situation in Iran. And for almost a month now, protesters have been in the streets there. Uh, you might remember it all started with the death of 22 year old Mansa Amini at the hands of Iran's morality police which is still hard for me to say no matter how many times I say it, um, for allegedly violating Iran's rules on women wearing hijabs or head coverings. Um, dozens of people, hundreds some say, have been killed in the protests. I heard that 23 children have died uh, as part of the unrest. The international community has condemned the regime, but... Uh, it goes on, and um it looks like it's going to continue, but there are some new developments. So to help us understand exactly what's going on and where this might be headed, we're going to talk with Kava Chirouz, who is a lawyer and a senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. Kava, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me
0: on and focusing on the story. Uh, just the, the latest on from what I saw this this weekend. I know you follow this extremely closely. Uh, bring us the latest on what you understand about the situations around the prison. The I think it's called the Evin prison uh, in Iran. Political prisoners being held there. Uh, there was a fire there this weekend. What happened? You know,
3: that's right. On Saturday afternoon, um, our time, word got out uh, and videos started to emerge of uh, the main prison in Tehran, Evin Prison. This is really like Iran's Bastille prison. This is where, um, well, frankly, maybe not even like Bastille prison. Um, yeah. This is really where most political prisoners are held. People sometimes refer to it as Evin University because it's really where the best and brightest people end up, regrettably, in that country. Um, so video started emerging of a fire, and then there were gunshots heard yeah. in that area, um and it it, it's been very frightening the official word now is that eight prisoners have died um, as a result of that, it's unclear. The The regime claims that, uh, you know, there was a prison riot by some criminal elements, um, but that, you know, th- this regime is, is generally not to be believed. So um, knowing what we know about the regime, knowing its attacks on political prisoners, knowing the fact that it actually literally has a history of burning down buildings with people in it, um, I think people are very suspicious about what happened. And this may have been an attempt to exterminate political prisoners.
0: Um. To what end? Uh, we we know there's unrest in the streets. We know that seems to be the focus of the international community. Why would this prison come under the uh, attack of the regime?
3: You know, the, the regime is deeply afraid of the people that are in that prison yeah. and what it represents. Uh, this regime has carried out mass prison executions before. Um, one of the things I've spent a lot of time working on was a, was a massacre that happened in the 1980s where the regime just took everybody that had been in prison for years. I mean, these are people that pose no immediate threat to the regime and simply executed them all. Um, so it's possible that they were doing it for that reason. I mean, the people that are in that prison will likely form the nucleus of future leadership of, of, of Iran. So it's entirely plausible that, a, that an evil regime like this one would try to kill them all at once.
0: Meanwhile, in the streets, protests continue daily. They have not stopped at all, right? We're almost a month into this now.
3: Uh, That's exactly right. A month into it. um, You see fewer videos because the uh, government has shut down or severely limited the Internet. Yeah. But every once in a while, videos still emerge. There are mass protests still happening. And it doesn't matter the level of violence that the that the government of Iran uses, people continue to come out, they continue to chant against the regime, and, and, and in some cases, fight um, openly against the security forces. So there's no sign of this letting up.
0: No, not at all. So we know that the people of Iran are doing the job. Uh, when you take a look at what's happening with the international community, specifically Canada first, um, last week, the federal government brought in a couple of rounds of sanctions and, and also some, some restrictions on some people within the regime saying they'll never be allowed in Canada, things like that, uh, they targeted the Revolutionary. Guard, high-ranking members of the regime. Your thoughts on how effective the pressure from Canada has been? I know you want to see more.
3: Um, I definitely want to see more. I mean, that's the role of the activists is to always demand more. Uh, But I've been very pleased with what I've seen. Um, You know, these have been our demands for years, and the government didn't really listen. I'm glad that they're finally listening. So they... uh, declared that 10,000 leading figures in the uh, Revolutionary Guards are inadmissible to Canada. They listed a number of civilian officials in the Iranian government as, uh, uh, you know, being under sanction. Um, These are all very positive developments. I think this is very good pressure. Um, uh, People affiliated with Iran's regime, many of them have uh, you know, pass to get into Canada. Some of them, frankly, have Canadian citizenship, which is yeah. very worrying. So blocking their path of entry into the country and potentially freezing their assets, I think, is very good. I hope that Canada will take the lead in promoting this idea uh, to other democratic countries so that the pressure can increase.
0: Kava, okay, this weekend I saw some interviews with people at the protest in Toronto specifically, and they were talking about right now, here in Toronto, members of the regime or their family are here living in toronto and have been uh for a very very long time and they need to be the focus of our government is that true i mean do we have family members of the regime living and working and studying in canada
3: that is absolutely true um people within the iranian canadian community have lots and lots of examples of people like that Um, and there have been a couple of cases that have been so blatant that they've been reported in the national press so for example um, the head of tehran's police force which carried out a mass crackdown um, in 2019 that ended up killing over, uh, around 1,500 people. He was seen um, in the suburbs of Toronto working out at a local gym. Uh, I, I think his family also lives here. Um, it's it's absolutely absurd that our doors have just been yeah. open to these people who come with large amounts of stolen money. And not only do they live here, they they thrive. I mean, they live well. They live in the nicest neighbourhoods in Toronto and Vancouver and elsewhere.
0: Uh, when we say you're calling for more and you want to see more, um, tell us about the petition and what else you think uh, the international community and the Canadian government should be doing.
3: Absolutely. So yesterday, we actually, uh, a number of activists based, uh, based in Canada, we put out a petition which in 24 hours has garnered over 200,000 signatories. You know, mind-blowing. Um, and our demand has been twofold of very simple. One, we want the G7 countries, including Canada, to, to demand an immediate release of all prisoners of conscience in Iran. And secondly, we want them to expel Iranian diplomats. Okay. Um, you know, Iran is a gender apartheid state. It has shown itself to be brutal, and um, we ought to treat it like a like an apartheid state, and we ought to isolate it diplomatically. And I think the key thing to do is to get rid of their uh, their representatives in our capitals. Um, where does this end? Uh,
0: is is the revolution going to be successful? Do you think? I mean, is the regime being weakened? Could we actually see regime change in Iran?
3: That's the million-dollar question. Um, I am typically not an optimistic person. Um, I've seen too many sort of betrayals of, of democratic uh, dreams. But on, in this case, I am. I remain very optimistic. Um, as we talked about earlier, the protests are not letting up. They're continuing. People are unafraid. They're openly calling for an end to the regime. And the regime seems to be in disarray. I mean, there are people um, high-ranking people that are kind of openly now criticizing the, the regime, sort of backtracking, it seems to suggest that there are fractures happening and they see the writing on the wall. Um, all of the signs point to the fact that uh, this revolution will be successful. I, I think, you know, you're going to see e- an even more intense crackdown uh, because violence is pretty much all the yep. government knows. Yeah. But uh, I, I remain hopeful that uh, the people will prevail.
0: Well, that is encouraging. And, Cavill, we will check in again as it goes along. Uh, always valuable insight. We appreciate you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.